0: Welcome, everyone, to our seminar this morning, and uh, I'm going to pass it over to Michael. Yeah, it's great to to join you again. Um, Give me a sec here. I just need to bring up my notes. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit as the, uh, if I were to give it a title, like the charismatic spirit, and the spirit is the spirit is the one who gives us gifts. Uh, over the past two weeks, uh, we looked at uh, Pentecost and the gift of the Spirit in terms of... I'm going to put you on speakerphone, then i got to work with two hands. Okay. The gift of the Spirit in terms of the Spirit is the one who Christ, the ascended and risen Christ, uh, gives to the church. Uh, the Spirit... Pentecost, also the Spirit as the Spirit of mission. And then last week, we looked at uh, Paul in terms of his understanding of the Holy Spirit. Probably the, the richest two sections of the New Testament that relate to the Holy Spirit are uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul and the Gospel of John. And today we want to think about the gifts of the Spirit, which is no longer as controversial an issue as it was maybe 25 years ago, but um, has been a source of controversy all through the 20th century. Um, That is, uh, which gifts does the Spirit give? Are there gifts that have ceased? Uh, And so on. So that's uh, what we want to look at uh, this morning. So let me again, as I said, pull up my notes here and uh we'll be sorry just while way. you're doing that michael i'll just remind everyone if you want to turn your videos on this morning um that's great then we're able to say hello to each other see each other a bit and um, michael can just kind of see who's in the audience if you're able to do that this morning that's great um otherwise we will just continue to imagine you in our minds so Sorry. Uh, Give me a sec here. Yeah. Okay, so we uh, should be ready, and um, let me open in a word of prayer, and then we'll be on our way. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this uh, morning, and for the privilege again of thinking about your Holy Spirit. Uh, We pray for his presence uh, to bless in terms of uh, our thoughts our words that they might please you that they might that he might illuminate our hearts as we look at scripture uh and give us deeper understanding of his work in our midst and uh in all that we do and say this morning may you be glorified for jesus sake amen okay so let me begin with the very basic uh idea uh we'll look at some verses in a minute um The word gift in Greek, there's two or three different words that can be used. Uh, The word that is frequently used in the New Testament is charisma. Um, When we use that word, uh, charisma, we use it in the sense of somebody having charisma. Um, Somebody being maybe a bubbly, sparkling personality. And we say they have charisma. Um, and so our use of the word, our meaning that we give to the word, is somewhat different than the Greek. Uh, it's obviously derived from the Greek in some ways. Um, but the Greek word is the idea of a concrete instance of a gift. Um, if we were to kind of break it down, the word katis, uh means grace. And so some people argue that uh, the idea of charisma is the idea of a, a grace gift or a gift that really is grounded in God's grace. Um, but normally the way the word charisma is translated, it's simply translated as gift. And if we were going to look at the plural of it, it's uh, charismata. Uh, this is a this means gifts. So what we want to affirm is that the new Testament teaches that the Holy Spirit gives charismata. He gives gifts. And in the new Testament, there are a number of lists of the gifts of the spirit. And, um, let me give you, uh, the Bible passages and just so you have them. Um, these are a number of lists of gifts of the spirit that we find in the new testament so this is not just this is not just a, a, an issue or a matter that is found only in one one place in the new testament but it's found in a number of places in the uh, new testament pages um let me let's take a look at some of these uh passages just to give you some idea uh, and then I've got another lit group of, of texts, which I'm going to give that relate to the heart of what I want to talk about this morning, which will be based on first Corinthians. But uh, let's go to Romans and Romans 12. And this, this passage is um, Romans 12 verses four to eight. This passage is a great passage to kind of think about the gifts because Paul lays down uh, certain principles that he's going to um, elaborate at greater length in 1 Corinthians, um, but he lays down some principles and also some gifts. Um, 1 Corinthians, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 4. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, uh, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. And um, what we see here is uh, the... I don't want to say mundane, but maybe the ordinariness of some of the gifts, uh, ones that you might not even think about. Um, Some people have the gift of generosity. I mean, obviously, it's expected that every Christian have a degree of generosity. But some people, maybe because of their financial resources or what have you, but some people have a gift of generosity. Um, Other people have a gift of exhortation. Uh, The only text here that you might think, oh, that's extraordinary, is the word prophecy. Um, Now, before Paul lists these gifts, um, he has a couple of principles. Uh, Number one, uh, there are many different gifts in the body of Christ. And um, no one person has obviously all the gifts. We have all different gifts. And Paul uses the idea of believers having gifts to a body and the various parts of the body, uh, hands, uh, nose, eye, legs, internal organs, etc. And that just as all these parts are needed for the body, likewise, all of the, all of the gifts that believers have are needed for the body to function. So this is, this is a key principle that we'll see Paul develop at greater length uh, elsewhere. Or look at um, uh, Ephesians 4, and then I'm going to go to some texts in uh, 1 Corinthians. Ephesians 4, and I'm just going to read one verse here. And um, here we see that the gifts are given by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We talked about how charisma is, it's the Holy Spirit giving these gifts. But here we have the Lord Jesus giving the gifts. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. Where Paul, uh, again speaking, says, And he himself, Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And here we have, Five list gifts, five uh, gifts of the risen Christ listed, only one of which you find in the Romans passage, which is prophecy or prophets. Here we find that the apostles of the early church were a gift. Um, evangelists, there are some who God gifts to be evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And, uh, in the original Greek, it's not, it's a uh, little ambiguous whether or not pastors and teachers are the same office or whether they're two. So do we have five gifts here or four? Um, John Calvin, for example, understood uh, the pastors and teachers to be separate gifts and therefore enumerated five different gifts here. Some argue differently because of the grammar of the Greek. Uh, we didn't get uh, um, kind of stymied on that or focused on that. Um, but here you have, a, again, a different set of, of, of gifts. But turn to First Corinthians, and I want to look at a number of passages in 1 Corinthians. And um, we're going to begin with 1 Corinthians 1, and then we're going to go to chapter 7. So again, let me put the passages in the chat room or the chat feature. So we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 1 verses 4 to 7. And then uh, I'm going to list another, uh, then we're going to look briefly at uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 7. And then a couple more lists that I've listed there in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. So 1 Corinthians, if There was a book in the New Testament that really focuses on the gifts. Uh, It's 1 Corinthians. And um, it's very important to note at the very beginning, Paul always, when he writes letters, this is something that I think is very important to note. Paul always thanks God for his readers and usually adapts his thanksgiving to things that... in the letter, they're mentioned in the letter that therefore we know about the church. And in this case, he mentions the fact that God has given to the Corinthians a variety of gifts. And Paul's thankful for that. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given, uh, you, given to you in, in, uh, in Christ Jesus. That you were chosen in him. In every way, in all speech, and in all knowledge, in this way the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift. And the Greek word there is charism- charisma. Uh, as you eagerly await uh, the, as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the gifts, as we will see, have caused certain problems in the Corinthian church. But Paul is very thankful, nonetheless, uh, for the gifts. As we will see, there are certain people in the Corinthian church who are arguing that there is one gift in particular that is the gift you have to have. And Paul's going to disagree strongly with that. But before he says anything about the, the gifts and the fact that the gifts have become a source of controversy, he's thankful. He's thankful that God has given to The church there, a variety of gifts, uh, and they excel in these. Um, Now, as he gets into the letter, there are a number of issues he wants to talk about, which we'll mention in a minute. But look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. And here's something you probably wouldn't think of as a gift. But Paul uses the word charisma. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. And he's talking here about the, the, uh, the whole idea of um, singleness or celibacy and marriage. And he says, I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift. Another has that. Um, he actually says then that the, uh, the remaining celibate or single is a gift. And that marriage is a gift. And as I said, he uses the word charisma. And there are some who argue, well, okay, these, these really don't fall into the category of spiritual gifts. Um, I'll, I'll leave that to others to, to argue about. But I think, I think the very fact that he uses charisma of singleness and celibacy and on the one hand, a marriage on the other within a letter that talks about the details of the gifts um i think if uh you were to ask paul well yeah it's a it's a it's a spiritual gift uh to remain single or it's a spiritual gift uh, to be married um but look at, uh, over at 1st corinthians 12 which is where paul gets into um the gifts in a in a very large uh fashion in terms of much detail uh 1st corinthians 12 let me read from verse 4 down to verse 11, and then I'm going to jump down to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. So 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 11. Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. There are different activities, but the same God produces each gift in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the spirit. To another, a message of knowledge by the same spirit. To another, a faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. To another, uh, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing distinguishing between spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. One and the same spirit is active in all these distributing to each person as he wills so again you see and by the way you see here now a a different range of of gifts and uh there is over the year has been over the years discussion so is there one definitive list well the the answer to this is obviously not um there are um a varieties of Uh, gifts of lists, varieties of gifts listed in these various lists, Um, none of the lists are the same. Um, Are these lists meant to be exhaustive? And I think the answer to that question is, is probably no. I think Paul is listing examples here of gifts that God gives to believers within the body of Christ. Some of them are remarkable in the sense of they're not, they're not like the gift of generosity or the gift of service, uh, the gift of healing, for example. Um, and we'll get into it in, a, in a few minutes, whether or not these gifts have ceased. But here we then have um, the emphasis that these gifts come from uh, God, the Holy Spirit. But he also emphasizes right at the beginning, notice in verse four, uh, verse four, yes, there are different gifts, but the same spirit. So all these gifts come from the same Holy Spirit. There are different uh, ministries, but the same Lord. There are different activities, but the same God. So it's interesting. He grounds the gifts, because I don't think he's talking about three different things here. uh, Gifts, ministries, activities. I think he's talking about the same thing. That he grounds the gifts in the Trinity. We're going to talk about the Trinity next week when we talk about the person of the Holy Spirit and the deity of the Holy Spirit. But this week, we just want to note that when Paul thinks of the activity of the Holy Spirit in the church, uh, the gifts the spirit gives, where do they come from? They come from the Holy Spirit. Where do they come from? They come from the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what he emphasized in Ephesians four. Where do they come from? They come from God, the father. And so the Trinity is active in the gifts it's not just the holy spirit it's the trinity as a whole and as we see there's um a variety of gifts and then notice and we'll come back to this again one in the same spirit is active in all these distributing to each person as he wills who 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 gives the gifts it's the holy spirit in the sense of he is the one who makes concrete in the life of an individual the gifts that the the triune God gives to the church, and He dec- God decides what gifts that we will have. Um, again, we could go. We're not going to get into this, but we could go into detail about okay, to what degree are gifts linked to personality, and um, uh, are the gifts linked to, to a natural temperament or natural inclinations, uh, etc.? And I think there probably is some. Ex- some reality to that—that that, uh, certain people um, before they're converted have a tendency, or um, um, uh, their personality moves in a certain direction, and then at conversion, it is as if God activates that now as a gift for the body of Christ. Um, but ultimately, uh, it's the Spirit decides what gift you will have. I think it's clear. Every believer has a gift. Like, there's no believer can say, "Okay, (laughs) I don't have anything. (laughs) My gift is to come and simply sit on Sundays." You know, that's my that's my spiritual gift. I come and I sit and I kind of take it in. No, no. Every believer's got a gift. Every believer has something to contribute to the body of Christ. Uh, This, by the way, is one of the reasons why I believe very firmly in the whole idea of membership in the body, in the ch- local church. Um, you're to, when you become a Christian, you're to join yourself to a body of believers. You're not just a free floating uh, Christian out there who turns up, uh, you know, you know, yeah, well, we'll, we'll turn up on Sundays at this church on a regular basis, but I really don't want to commit myself, you know, uh, show me exactly maybe where it says I've got to be a member and, you know, et cetera. Well, I, I think the very fact that you've got this idea that every believer has got a gift for the local church indicates you, you have to use that gift in the context of the local church and therefore you're to be committed to that local church. And uh, churches obviously have different ways of expressing that, that idea of membership. But I think membership is very much a biblical idea uh, that we join ourselves publicly, and join ourselves uh, consciously to a body of believers, and that we use the gifts or gift that God has given us for the growth of the body, for the glory of God. Um, the other passage I list here also has a list of gifts, and it's interesting. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3. Um, This is very familiar to you because you've probably heard this read innumerable times at weddings. But let me I hope I don't uh, upset anybody, but let me emphasize this is (laughs) his text originally had nothing to do with weddings and marriages. It's not inappropriate because a marriage is about love and um, love between believers in the body of Christ. Uh, that sort of love that should be reigning, regnant there should also be in a marriage. But this this passage is is right smack dab in the middle of a long discussion about the gifts of the spirit. And uh, what Paul is doing here, he's contrasting the use of the gifts with love and how love is critical. And you can have all kinds of gifts but if you don't use them in love, uh, it's really it amounts to a spiritual zero. If I speak uh, human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So um, if I speak in tongues, which we'll get to in a minute, <laughs> um, but I don't exercise it in love or I don't have love. Then what's its meaning? It's meaningless. It's like a, it's like a symbol that's just making noise. Um, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so I can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. So, um, in Paul's thinking, prophecy is a greater gift than tongues because prophecy and encourages and builds up the body uh tongues has to be interpreted so a person could have the gift of tongues speak in another language and unless it's interpreted it, it's meaningless to the body of christ and uh, prophecy is a much better gift in that sense so i could have prophecy i could have the gift of faith and he's obviously not thinking here every christian has faith that's saving faith but there are some christians who just have this remarkable gift of faith. George Mueller. I don't know if you know the story of George Mueller. The uh, brethren evangelist in uh, Bristol in England. Who ran a, an orphanage for the best part of 50, 60 years. And had at a certain point, two, 300 children. Never once asked for money. Never. Simply prayed. And he believed that God would supply all their needs. And God did. Um, I have a very, I have a good friend who I don't see that often, who lives that way. He's in ministry. Um, he doesn't take a salary. Never. He'll, he'll, let's say he had, you'd invited him to come and speak at Presswick. He would, he would, uh, he lives in the United States. He would fly to here. Um, he pay his own way. He refuses to take any honorarium. And he basically says God will provide. And he's been doing this now for 40 years. And God has always provided. He does not believe that everybody should live like this. Not at all. But he believes that God has given him a gift of faith. And he wants to demonstrate by this way of living the reality of God's existence. And God, he said the only time that um, he didn't do this, uh, he had a deep sense that he had disobeyed God. The only time he ever took some money for ministry, he had just a deep sense that he should not have done that. But the scripture says very clearly that those who uh, preach and teach, we ought to support. So uh, he's, uh, he's quite, he, in principle, he could very easily have take gifts or take financial remuneration. But he has a gift of faith that God will supply his needs. Um, If I have such faith, but don't have love, I'm a spiritual zero. Uh, Please note, this is very important. Please note that um, what you've got here then are um, gifts that Paul is kind of upping the ante each time. These are very, very significant gifts. Uh, He starts with tongues and then he ups the ante to prophecy and faith. And now he's going to up the ante again. Um, If I give away all my possessions, uh, the gift of giving, and if I give over my body uh, in order to to burn, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And uh, what he's referring there to is the gift of giving or generosity and the gift of martyrdom. And I I suspect you never think about martyrdom as a gift. Uh, The early church was quite convinced that martyrdom is a gift. That martyrdom does build the body. Now, you might be thinking, well, (laughs) that's that's quite quite strange. Uh, But no, I mean, martyrdom is a vivid, vivid portrayal that there are some things in life for which it is worth giving your life your most precious possession there are some things that are more important than your life and that's a gift to the body um so we have these lists then various lists of gifts first corinthians uh chapters 12 through 14 um, is focused on the gifts you'll notice the the way first corinthians 12 begins in verse 1 now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware, or I do not want you to be ignorant. Um, that little phrase concerning, and then what follows spiritual gifts, uh, is that little phrase concerning is found four or five times in the letter to the, first, to the Corinthians. It's found back in chapter 7, um, where Paul deals with marriage and intimacy within marriage um it's found in um uh let me well let me take you to a couple of places where it's found um just to give you the kind of idea um that paul has here it's found in chapter 8 verse 1 for example um chapter 8 verse 1 now about food sacrificed to idols and um scholars believe that the corinthians and i think this is true uh corinthians had written to paul about and had certain questions <clears throat> what do you think about the whole area of marriage because jesus is coming back soon do you think we should give up marriages um and in fact paul spent some time at the beginning of first corinthians 7 talking about uh, physical intimacy within marriage and it would appear that some of the Corinthians were advocating quote unquote what we call what historians call a spiritual marriage that is a couple living together as husband and wife but having no intimacy um or uh in chapter eight, some of us think that we can go into a temple and you know uh have food sacrificed to idols. What do you think of that um Or if you jump down to to, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, uh, verse 1. Now about the collection for the saints. Uh, They had asked Paul, so uh, what about this collection of money you started a while ago? And um, if you want to see details about that, you have to look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Romans chapter 15 and it's a long scale project that a lot of people don't realize it's a very important part of Paul's ministry when he went up to Jerusalem as a very young Christian uh, to meet Peter and Paul uh, sorry Peter and John and James Peter and John our Lord's disciples and James our Lord's half-brother one of the things that they they urged him when he went on his ministry to the gentiles do not forget the poor that's in galatians chapter two and they meant there the poor believers in jerusalem not just poor people in general but the poor believers in jerusalem a lot of christians in jerusalem had become impoverished and so paul came up with this idea of gathering money from the various churches he planted and it took it took about 10 years where he gathered money from Gentile churches. And for him, it was a living demonstration of unity of Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ. So that's what he's talking about there. Um, so this, uh, my point being, that little phrase, now concerning, indicates questions the Corinthians had. So one of the questions the Corinthians had was concerning spiritual gifts. If we had time to read all through 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, it would be very obvious that the questions they have concern the gift of speaking in tongues. Um, It's been controversial in the 20th century. It was controversial in Paul's day. And it's obvious that some of the Corinthians think it's quite fine to stand up, speak in an unknown language, which um, nobody else in the congregation knows. And um, have it not translated and paul's horrified by that um in chapter 12 uh he lays down some principles to deal with gifts in general then in chapter 13 he starts to move towards the problem in chapter 13 he emphasizes that the gifts have to be used in love if we don't have love doesn't matter what gifts we have love is the the preeminent element of the christian life Christian life is basically, at its heart, all about love. It's about the love of God expressed in our Lord Jesus Christ that is so overwhelming that it draws us to faith in Jesus. And then we demonstrate the reality of our conversion by love. Love for God. Love for one another. Love for the lost. And uh, I, I know our culture is big on love. And we could... You know, spend some time thinking about, OK, how is our culture's idea of love different from our idea of love? And for some Christians, that, that's produced a bit of reaction where they've emphasized, you know, you know truth is more important than love. Um, the reality is that you can be an unloving Christian. You can be a, a, a Christian who's completely orthodox, emphasizing truth and yet be unloving. Love is the preeminent goal of, of our teaching the truth. Uh, we teach the scriptures that we might grow in love for God, for one another, for the lost. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 brings that out. The goal of our teaching, Paul says, is love. So uh, 1 Corinthians 13, then Paul goes through some principles, which we'll look at briefly in 1 chapter 12. Then he emphasizes love. They must all this must be done in an atmosphere of love, and then in chapter fourteen, he now confronts the problem, which is some of you think that tongues is a great is the spiritual gift everybody should have, or these preeminent spiritual gift, and Paul contrasts tongues with prophecy. So in chapter twelve, there are really two principles that Paul lays down. Um, first of all, Every believer has a gift. Um, Notice in um, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 there. And um, verse 7. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person. So every believer has a gift. And uh, we don't all have the same gifts. (laughs) That's obvious. Paul lists different gifts. As I said earlier, I don't think those gifts are meant to be exhaustive. But every believer's gift. No believer can say, I don't have a gift. If the Holy Spirit indwells you, you have a gift. You have something for the body of Christ that you can use. And uh, no believer can say, My spiritual gift is to come and sit in a pew. They didn't have pews in those days, but whatever, uh, on Sundays. No, every believer's got a gift for the body. And then, second principle that's linked in that verse. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. Every believer has gift, but the gifts are given not for you primarily. They're given for the body. This is why I said earlier, the fact that you don't have any formal discussion on membership in the New Testament, uh, you have it right here. You are to be joined to a local church. Your gifts that God has given you for are for the body of Christ, and you can't use them unless you're joined to the church. So every believer's got a gift. The reason why God gave you a gift is that you might use it to build up the body. Now, in chapter twelve, he goes into a long discussion about what a body looks like. You know, Um, the body's not primarily an eye. You know, if the body were primarily an eye, and one almost gets a sense of humor here um you know this eye rolling down the street this huge eye uh like it need uh, the body needs legs right to move around and arms and um a mouth to eat and internal organs and um, the, the it's obvious that in the body the human body we've got various parts they're all needed to make up the body the same with the body of christ and uh the reason why the eye is necessary is we have to be able to see where we're going uh we need a mouth to be able to eat we need a, a tracheal tube or whatever the the, the throat and uh, they that'll take food down into the stomach we need a stomach to process food we need the intestines etc 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 and so uh every believer has a gift and the gifts are given for the common good paul lays down those two principles very very clearly. Then in uh, chapter 12. Now, let me move uh, to the question, have some of the gifts ended? And some people have argued, oh, well, 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says in verse 12, now we see uh, only in reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I'm fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And some have argued, um, oh, okay, what Paul is talking about here um, is uh, the cessation of some of the gifts when, um, uh, let me go back, actually, um, uh, in verse uh, 11, when I would, oh, sorry, verse 10, verse 9. We know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. So some have argued, okay, so Paul is arguing here that uh, the gifts are given um, to the point when the perfect has come, and the perfect is scripture. And once we have scripture, we don't need apostles and prophets and tongues and so on. Um In the context of 1 Corinthians 13, that would be, that's a, I think, a very hard sell. Uh, A normal reading of the passage doesn't give me the impression that Paul is talking about the perfect being scripture. A normal reading of the passage gives me the impression that he's talking about the face to face vision in heaven. When we have arrived at that which is perfect, namely heaven, and we see God face-to-face in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, we won't need the, these gifts that we have now. Um, we'll have the fullness of the Spirit in a way. Again, we talked about this last week. Uh, we have intimations now. Uh, we have the down payment of the Spirit now. Uh, but we will have a fullness then. Um, I think he's talking, I don't think he's talking about have, uh. the the cessation of the gifts at all here. Um, Dr. John MacArthur, who all of you probably know, uh, has argued this at at some length. And uh, I think he he misunderstands Paul here. Um, I don't think Paul is talking about the cessation of the gifts um, in this world when scripture comes. Um, And obviously the big issue is not gifts of generosity. Um, We all want people in the church with gifts of generosity um, or serving or what have you. It's those extraordinary gifts, um, tongues and healings and so on. Have they ceased? And I would argue, first of all, I'm not sure it's the right question in some ways. Um, It's interesting if if martyrdom is a gift and celibacy is a gift that those people who often talk about we want all the gifts at work in the church (laughs) and I'm I'm sometimes naughty if I'm with a Pentecostal or person we call charismatic I'll say then we get into a discussion of the which gifts and they'll say you know we want all the gifts I I'd say something like "Uh, really yeah yeah we All the gifts are meant to be in the church, functioning. What about the gift of martyrdom? Uh, Oh. uh, (laughs) And it's obvious also that the gift of martyrdom, I don't know much about Crestwick. I know our brother Sam there. Um, I've not been to the building and so on. But I'm pretty certain you don't have among you martyrs. In fact, in the fellowship, I can only think of one church in southern Ontario in the fellowship that has a martyr in her history. And that is Forward Baptist Church in Toronto, um, uh, where if you go into the sanctuary, there is a plaque to a brother, Tom Dever, who died as a martyr in 1936. He was speared to death by Ethiopian um, uh, tribesmen. And he came from Ford. And uh, this might change. The early church had that gift in abundance. There are churches around the world today. You, know, one thinks of the church in Iran, or the church in China, um, or North Korea. But we don't. So some churches have that gift; others don't have that gift. Remember the 1 Corinthians twelve eleven. The spirit gives the gifts as he pleases. Um, and then also in our past, and I've, I've got about 40 examples of this. I'll give, I'll give two or three very quickly. Baptists. I'm thinking here of Baptists. I'm not talking about Pentecostals or Charismatics. I'm thinking just simply of Baptists. In the 1650s, a Baptist leader named Abraham Cheer C-H-E-A-R-E, who had a church in Plymouth. He was the first Baptist pastor of the church in Plymouth in England. Got a letter from a man named Francis Langdon, who lived in a neighboring county, Cornwall. If you know, uh, Plymouth is in Devon, and Cornwall is right next to it. They're in the, what we call the West Country of England, as you go down towards land's end which is right at the end of Cornwall, and this man langdon said um i've become convinced that uh, of believers baptism which was a very controversial issue at the time because everybody baptized infants and um only baptists baptized believers by immersion only baptists nobody else Uh, presbyterians congregationalists anglicans roman catholics lutherans they all baptized infants by pouring, so this man uh, Langdon, he said, "I have become convinced of believers' baptism. Could you come down to, to Cornwall and baptize me?" But he said, and uh, Cheer was quite willing to do so. But he, in the letter he, he sent to him, he said, "There's one. It's one little problem. I, I'm. I think I'm dying of TB. I'm very ill. But I. I, I want you to baptize me as a believer in by immersion because I'm convinced God's going to heal me." when you baptize me and that'll prove that believers baptism by immersion is the only right way. <laughs> so I, I, I haven't asked pastor McCallum what he would do if he got a letter like that, <laughs> you know, some guy out in the Yukon and we'll pay your flight. And uh, The letter came by the way, in January. So there's snow on the ground. You can keep that in mind. Anyway, off cheer goes. And he gets to where this man, Langdon, um, he was actually uh, an officer in the Cromwellian, Oliver Cromwell's new model army. And um, he gets to Langdon and the case is worse than he had thought. The guy is, he's bedridden. And he looks desperately ill and nigh unto death. And this guy wants to get baptized in immersion, in water. Uh, yeah, and it's the wintertime. There's snow on the ground, and um, <clears throat> there's no indoor baptistry. Baptists don't do that at this period of time. It's always outdoor in a river, stream, pond, or lake. And uh, so, cheers said, "Well, what does the church think? Let, let's spend the weekend in prayer and discussion, and we'll we'll figure out what the church says." And uh, the church was split three ways. Uh, they finally took a, a vote on the Sunday. Uh, the baptism was to be done Monday. There were two other people to be baptized, two women. And the church took a vote. Should we baptize Captain Langdon? Number one, uh, one group said, um, yes, we should baptize him by immersion in the outdoors and God will heal him. And it'll be a sign to the Presbyterians and the Ankins that believers' baptism by immersion is the only way. Uh, a second group said, we, we need to go ahead anyway. Uh, we need to go ahead and baptize him by immersion as a believer. We're convinced it'll kill him. <laughs> but we need to do it anyway because it's a step of obedience. And then a third group said we shouldn't be testing God. This is just wrong. And uh, nobody, it's very, this is very, this is another topic for another uh, subject another day. Nobody thought, nobody came up with the idea. Why don't we just pour a little bit of water over his head? And that'll do nobody came up with that idea and then uh so abraham cheer was asked what do you think you know given the split what do you think well he said i'm of the third group now cheer wrote this so this is why this is very important he said i'm of the third group i don't think we should baptize uh, francis langdon at all we don't you don't need to be baptized to be saved this will kill you for sure and i think he's just testing god but uh there were still two people to be baptized, so the following day they had a they they go down the the, the church it was on a hillside, they go down the hillside to the river, snow on the ground. Now the river wasn't ice, but if there's snow on the ground, it's going to be cold and they baptized the two sisters uh by immersion, and then suddenly they see some friends have gotten Captain Langdon on a horse, and they're bringing him down to the river. <laughs> So Cheer's in a sticky position. What's he going to do with this? So they get down to the river and uh, Ch- the Captain Langdon says to Cheer, are you going to baptize me? Do you believe that God will heal me when you baptize me? And Cheer says, no, I don't. And I'm not going to baptize you. So then Cheer, uh, the Captain Langdon turns to a deacon in the church, said, would you baptize me and believe that God will heal me? And Guy says, yes. He's one of the group who said we should baptize you by immersion and God will heal you? So they get him off the horse, get him in the water, plunge him under the water. He's, he he's, looks like he's dying of TB. He comes up out of the water. I mean, they had to bring him down on a horse, propping him up. He comes up out of the water. He runs up the hill. This is, this is Chia writes the story runs up the hill, goes home, has a roast beef dinner sleeps for eight hours, wakes up, and he's healed. It's just a remarkable story. Of course, the Baptists loved it uh, because it's an evidence of God, God, God's got his stamp of approval only on believers' baptism by immersion. But it's a remarkable story. And what is even more remarkable is the man who cheered. He, he said, I, di- I didn't believe God would do this, which I think, to me, when I re- I read this, I thought, this is this is all the earmarks of authenticity. Or let me give you a second example. Uh, this is C.H. Spurgeon, whom all of you know the name. Uh, Spurgeon was just a remarkable wonder of a preacher. Uh, he started preaching when he was 16. Um, when he was 19, he was called to uh, what became a major church in London, the metro- what becomes the Metropolitan Tabernacle which still exists today, not the actual building, but the place where the church was in Spurgeon's day, uh, there is a building there, but not the actual building, which was destroyed in World War II. But um, uh, Spurgeon went up and the original building had uh, could hold about 1,200 people. Within six months, the place was jammed to the rafters and they rented a thing called the Surrey Music Hall, which could seat 800. And they started to, to expand the church building to seat 1,500. Sorry, the the Surrey Music Hall could seat 8,000. That's right, could seat 8,000. And it soon was filled. And meanwhile, they're expanding the church building to seat 1,500. I don't know who came up with that idea. Okay, so we've got a 1,200-seat building. We'll add 300 more seats. Meanwhile, we're renting a building, and there are 8,000 in the building. And within within a few weeks of them getting back into the, the the renovated church building, they decided to tear the whole thing down and build a, a whole new building that could that could house six thousand worshippers. So that's another story. So Spurgeon is in the Surrey Music Hall, eight thousand people, and this is around 1859, 1860. and he's preaching. And he stops in the middle of preaching, and he points to a part of one of the, the uh, balconies and says, there's a man up there, you're a shoemaker. Last Sunday, you had your store open. You sold this many pairs of shoes for this much money, and you made this much profit. You sold your soul to the devil for five pounds. And then he went on preaching. No, you, you, you Imagine, this happened at Cresswick, <laughs> And Pastor McCallum did that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let's come over him. About 8,000 people. Later that week, there were two workers in the church who were going around the neighborhood trying to encourage people. I mean, they had, they had 8,000, but they were trying to encourage others to come out to hear Spurgeon. And they came to this man. They, they came to his house, and he told them uh, everything that had happened. And he said, I I went to the church, and I was not a believer. I I went to to, to see this man, and he said this, and he was exactly right. I have no idea, he said, how how that man knew all this about me. I I thought it could only be God, and I've become a Christian. So the two workers were thrilled, and Spurgeon would have loved this. They they said to him, uh, well, you'll be back, of course, um, next week. No, no, I don't think I'll be coming back. And he said, Why is that? You know, you've been converted. It's tremendous. Oh, no, I don't want to come back. Lest Mr. Spurgeon tell the congregation more about me. <laughs> so I, I'm, we don't know whether he went back. Spurgeon mentions this story and he says, This happened to me 10 or 12 times in his ministry. And um, he never made a big deal of it. It's tucked away at the Uh, his autobiography was written in four volumes and it was eventually completed by his wife after his death and um it's tucked away on a page a page and a half of the fourth volume of his autobiography near the end of the autobiography when he's talking about some details of his ministry he never made a big deal of it it happened um it's extraordinary now If he had been a very different person living today, he might have made a ministry out of this. You know, there are people who make ministries out of this. But he didn't. I have a very close friend, um, probably one of my closest friends. I won't mention his name. He is a pastor. Uh, He goes to a fellowship church. Um, He serves in a parachurch organization. And he had something like this happen once. Uh, He was preaching here in a church in southern Ontario. Again, I won't name where. And uh, as he was preaching, he as he was looking at the his congregation, he looked at a person on one side of the room, a woman. And then as he was just looking uh, at the other, uh, he, uh, uh, his congregation, he looked at a person, a man on the other side of the room. <clears throat> he said, as he's preaching and he's not preaching about the subject, he said, I do not know how this was uh, the case. I knew that they were having an adulterous relationship. They were on two different sides of the room, both of them married. He said, "I." it was impressed on me. They're in an adulterous relationship. And he said, as it turned out, it was true. He said, it was weird. He's never had anything like that. And of course, it's not, a, <laughs> that's not he's not made into a ministry. But he had this, what we could only describe as a word of knowledge. So all this to say this, um, I'm not convinced that the gifts, we can rule that the gifts have ceased. As it, as it <clears throat> works out in terms of um, things like speaking tongues, anybody who studied church history will know that speaking tongues becomes virtually unheard of for most of church history. And then suddenly in the 20th century, it becomes a hallmark of the people we call Pentecostals, who, please note, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. We disagree with them on what is the place of tongues in the Christian life. Um, some gifts, like martyrdom. Uh, you know, our churches have not had martyrs for centuries. You have to go back to the period we're talking about with, with Abraham Cheer. When the church was persecuted, Baptists were persecuted. But in, in England or Western Europe or North America, we've not had martyrs. So it's obvious. this Again, it's got to do with our circumstances. But it's obvious that that gift is not being given. But other churches have been given that gift because of their circumstances. You know, they, they're in context of persecution. Um, if there is one gift that has ceased, it is the gift of the apostle and it would take us too far afield uh to get into the details of that uh the the gift of apostle is foundational to the church ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 the gift of the apostle the apostle has to be somebody who has seen our lord jesus christ and in the new testament the technical use of that term is limited to about 15 people the twelve. And that would include uh, Matthias, who's appointed after the resurrection of Christ to take the place of Judas. Paul's called an apostle, Barnabas, and James, our Lord's brother. There's about 15. Uh, Peter, John, the, the 12, Paul, Barnabas, and James, our Lord's brother, who writes the letter of James. And the apostle, Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, that Christ is building the church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the apostle, in one sense, there are no more apostles. So there are certain charismatic groups who talk about, you know, God had first-time apostles. Now he's got end-time apostles. Well, that just destroys the whole image of what Paul's saying in Ephesians 2. You know, when you build a building, you lay the foundation first, then you build the building. You don't lay a foundation, build half the building, (laughs) and then lay another foundation. No, no. The apostles are part of the foundation. And once you move on up to the upper levels of the building, you don't need that. That gift is already there laying the foundation, giving direction and structure to the building. Now, in one sense, we still do have the gift of apostle in the New Testament, right? In the Bible. So in a sense, the gift is still with us. That's the only gift I would say definitively, in one sense, has ceased. Um, I, as I say, I'm not sure the question is the, the most appropriate question. Because with the gift of martyrdom, the Spirit hasn't given that. And with the gift of speaking in tongues. Um, I'm dubious about probably most of what I've heard in Pentecostal circles and i've been in uh, when i was first a christian i was saved at stanley avenue baptist but our pastor at the time bruce woods was very enamored of the charismatic movement and i ended up for quite an well, probably about four or five years my wife we used to go to a charismatic meeting on friday nights in campbellville called bezac uh, which was led by a <clears throat> an anglican charismatic christian and uh, a united churchman named bernie warren And I probably didn't see everything, but I saw a lot of stuff there. And um, over the years, I've become skeptical of most of what I've heard of uh, speaking in tongues. But I I wouldn't, in principle, deny the possibility of God giving the gift of an unknown language to a brother or sister for the advance of the gospel. It's a big issue. And... um, what is vital, and we've we've often gotten bogged down, and with this I'll draw my comments to a close and we can uh, have time for questions. We've often got bogged down on um, um, uh, the extraordinary gifts and fail to remember that a lot of those lists of gifts are ordinary, quote unquote, things in the body. And we've also often forgotten every believer has a gift. And the gifts are given for the common good. So have the gifts ceased? Well, obviously we won't affirm no. We, we need the gifts in the body of Christ. Have certain gifts ceased? Um, I think apostle is the only one that we can definitively say in this one sense that has ceased. In another sense that has not because we have the scriptures, which is the, the essence of the gift of the apostle. Um. Pastor McCallum asked me to do a couple other things, which one which I'll do next week is say a little bit about my own testimony. Uh, The other was to um, just give you some resources. And I have three books that I think are uh, helpful studies. One is by the late J.I. Packer called Keep in Step with the Spirit. That's the Keep in Step J.I. Packer. Keep in Step with the Spirit. And um, it's, a, it's a tremendous book. And it deals with the charismatic movement and uh, the holiness movement and so on. And it's, it's just a very, very a good study. Um, it's focusing on certain th- things. So it's not an overall study of the work of the Spirit. There is this one by Sinclair Ferguson. Called, simply called The Holy Spirit. And uh, then a third one. <clears throat> um, he who gives life. By Graham Cole. He who gives life by Graham Cole. So keep in step by this with the spirit by J.I. Packer. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, the Holy Spirit and then Graham Cole, He Who Gives Life. And those are three of the, the latitude by Ferguson and Cole are very, they're, they're overviews of the entirety of who the Holy spirit is and his work in, in the Bible and in the life of the church since then. Okay. Let me <clears throat> ask if there are any questions. Um, I do need to go around 10, 15. So in about six or seven minutes. And, um, If there are questions that I don't get to today, I'm happy to begin next week with with questions. Next week, we'll begin at the the 930 time. And why don't I next week begin with my own testimony a little bit? And then if there are any questions that you've had from today, we can look at them then. But are there any now that we can answer maybe briefly? There's one in the chat from you and Sylvie. Our gift something we should constantly work at developing. Um, Yeah, I think so. Um, You know, if if a person has a gift of generosity, then I think that person should think about, you know, how can I best use this gift in the body of Christ? Um, um, A gift of service, And that covers, obviously, an entire range of things. Uh, service in our churches is going to look a bit different from service, say, in the Greco-Roman world, where a service, you had a house church. Uh, but I think people, if you've got a gift of service, you know that the Lord has gifted you in this fashion. Um, then I think you, 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 it, does, it is helpful to think, okay, how can I use this gift to the best advantage? In the body of Christ, how can I serve God's people given my my particular gifts? Uh, what about people who say they have their own prayer language yeah I've got real problems with that to be honest um, uh, J I. Packer talks about this as kind of the you know people who are not actually speaking another language. Uh, it 's kind of like a, a language of little babies, you know when a baby you know goo goo gaga ga, we, we say those sort of things, the little babies, and this is kind of a he says he talks about this as kind of a prayer language um, i I'm, I think speaking in tongues in the New Testament is speaking in a in an actual human language that has not been learned, and i don 't think that 's a lot of what is going on in charismatic and Pentecostal circles. Um, for Paul speaking in tongues has value by it's being interpreted. So I'm not sure what value it would have in some sort of prayer language that you've got no idea what you're saying. To be honest. Um, how do we know what gifts the spirit bestows on us? Uh, is it something we can seek out or do we have to wait for the spirit to reveal it? Um, <clears throat> um that's a that's a very good, that, those are both very good questions. I think to some degree we do need to ask, I mean, Paul says, pursue spiritual gifts. So I think we do need to ask the Holy Spirit and God, uh, please show me where I can serve the body of Christ. Please show me how you have gifted me, what areas I can serve God's people in. Uh, so I think it is something we can seek. Um, and I think uh if you're committed to serving in the body of christ i think it'll become obvious the way god gives you i mean there are people in our midst who are musical that's not mentioned as one of the gifts is it a gift for the body of christ without a shadow of a doubt and um i can't read music and uh i i think at one time i must have been able to do something because when i was about 10 years old uh i we i played the trumpet <laughs> And it only lasted about a year and um, <clears throat> I, I really have, I don't have a musical bone in my body uh, and um, uh, I'm, I'm told by my family, I, I think I sing great <laughs> but I am told by my children were the first to tell me and I, it, was a, it was an instance where I was singing quite loudly and there was a little boy in front of me turned around and kind of looked up at me and my son says to me, my son was about 12 I said, Dad, it's your singing. Just quiet down. And so if you ask my children about my singing, it, it's dreadful. My wife says that when she met me, I, I was completely monotone, but I have improved a little over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, that's a gift, though, right, to sing, to be able to, to sing for the body of Christ uh, in um, um, uh, song, uh, either singly or in, in, to lead in worship musically, that's a gift and they obviously can be honed but it's a gift some of us don't have the gift at all and but some do and um again as a speaker uh i didn't know that god had given me a gift of teaching when i first started teaching and uh, i've had to think about how you do it and work on it uh, etc preaching again is a gift um i think preaching and teaching are very different things um and the preaching can be honed. Um, you can read books on how you preach, and it's it's a gift, but it can be it can be developed, and so on. Um, next time, might you recommend readings from the patristics on themes of these sessions? Yes, yeah, I can I can bring that. Uh, so, patristics being the early church. Um, what about healing? Um, <clears throat> well, James five. Uh, which we tend to forget. Paul says, "If one of you is ill, uh, call the elders uh, for the laying on of hands and anointing with oil." And um, the healing is a whole. Obviously, it's a much larger thing uh, that we could get into. But obviously, I think there is there there we we should uh, we we do not dismiss the use of medical means, but we should pray for healing. Um, again, I have a friend who had a one-year-old who was diagnosed with some sort of childhood cancer, and it was all through the child's body, a little girl, and the doctors basically, they put her through radiation and all that, and they basically told, told, uh, the, the parents whom we know well, my wife and I, uh, you need to prepare for her death. Uh, we, we, we do not hold out any hope. Um, Well, we were at her wedding in her late 20s. She's now in her mid-30s, and she has four children. And again, my friend's not a charismatic. He's not. They they prayed, and we didn't know them at that time. And they believed God would heal. They came to believe that God would heal uh, their little daughter, Brittany. And God did. And uh, my friend's very he's a very sober individual in the sense of um, uh, they would have worshiped and glorified God if he had taken their little child to himself but he healed her so <clears throat> sometimes God does heal like that that, that that in that way um, and we should pray w- w- with faith that God can heal that way um, but again it's heal as I say healing is a There's other things here with the consciousness that God is sovereign. And often he doesn't, he doesn't heal as we expect. And, um, you know, it's, as I say, it's a much larger, larger picture there. Um, let me draw to a close, close in a word of prayer. Um, if you've got questions next week, I'll begin with my own testimony and then we'll, we'll take some questions. Uh, if you've got them from this week and, um, then next week, I want to look at uh, the Holy Spirit in terms of who he is, person, his personhood. Okay, so let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time again. Uh, we thank you for your sovereign work in our midst, that by your spirit, the spirit of our Lord Jesus, you have given us gifts. <clears throat> we do pray that we might use them for the body of Christ, that we might use them to build up one another in the faith and that we might use them for your glory and for your honor. Be with us, we pray, this day and in the week to come, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you. we look forward to seeing you then next week. God bless.